Welcome to Content Pros Podcast, where we unlock the strategies and secrets of the best content marketers in the world and ask the questions you've always wanted asked. Content Pros is sponsored by Sixter, allowing marketers to automatically inject clickable images called campaigns into every one of their employee email signatures to promote their company's most important initiatives or content. Now, here are your hosts from Oracle Marketing Cloud, Chris Moody, and from Uberflip, Randy Frisch. Ready? Let's talk to the pros. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Content Pros. On the podcast today, I'm very, very excited. I am joined by David Spark. If you don't know David Spark, you should. He runs Spark Media Solutions. He has an awesome book, Three Feet from Seven Figures, One-on-One Engagement Techniques to Qualify More Leads at Trade Shows. Tons of stuff going on, even stand-up comedy. So, David, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's awesome to be here, and I am so glad Randy is not here with us. <laughs> well, I'm glad you said that. That was going to be the first thing I hit on. So Randy is not here from Uberflip, so it will just be David and I. So, you know, since you are very excited about that, maybe the first place to start since you cracked with a joke, but I know that you were a touring stand-up comedian. So could you talk a bit about what you were doing there? Uh, yeah, I did that uh, in college, out of college for maybe a dozen years, and uh, it was... Here's uh, uh, the headline for that is I'm glad I did it and I'm glad I'm never going to do it again. <laughs> it's kind of one of the things. What uh, stand up taught me to do it it taught me to be a very good writer uh, and it taught me to write succinctly. And the great thing about stand up is you know when we write things like a blog post, we don't necessarily know how good it is, and our only sort of way to re to know how good it is, is how many people sort of like and share and comment on it. The advantage of doing stand-up is it's instantaneous feedback. So you know, you become a better writer because, oh, they didn't laugh at that line. So that line doesn't work. So I have to rewrite it. And uh, nothing gives you that kind of feedback. And that's what's so awesome about stand-up. The reason I, I didn't enjoy doing it is I didn't like all the other stuff that's connected to stand-up that requires you to be a stand-up. Uh, and that's a lot of waiting around. It's a lot of sucking up to club owners. It's uh, it's dealing with the competition. And while the core of it I enjoyed, and also it's touring to places you don't want to perform. That was a lot of it. Um, and so, you know, I decided, you know, that. I didn't enjoy it anymore, and so I stopped doing it. But I still have tons and tons of friends in stand-up, some who have become uber successful, and uh, that uh, it was it was it was fun while it lasted, and I learned a ton from it as well. As well. Well, I like the parallels to writing, and I know a lot of people do refer to stand-up as writing, and they write their jokes, they write their sets, they do all of that, and. I've actually been to a couple of comedy shows here in Raleigh where it's been pretty famous comedians that are on Comedy Central and HBO specials, and they'll do the first half where it's a set. So they've recorded it and or, or written it, and they've done it before, and that's what they do. And then I've seen somewhere the second half, they sit there with a notebook, and they'll just test things and ask people what they want to talk about and get that instantaneous feedback. So I'm curious, knowing that like you said, if you say something instantly, people laugh or they don't laugh or they boo you off stage or throw something. How are you applying that? I had that beer thrown at me while I was on stage once, by the way. 
Oh, nice. So I haven't had that happen to me as a writer yet. Uh, no blog posts have had beer thrown at me, but what are you trying to apply from stand-up to what you're doing now? I hear a rhythm in the stuff that I write because, uh, you know, you need you need timing and rhythm for stand-up. So, so much of it is when you write is how it sounds. And so, you know, I read some stuff often with the sort of the cadence that I did when I, when I did stand-up. And if it just doesn't have a rhythm, it falls, it clunks. If I'm not setting up to a payoff, uh, that's kind of what I'm looking for. But it's, you know, I'm not necessarily writing set of punchline, but I'm trying to, I used to refer to, you know, writing jokes as doing kind of a mathematical proof, like you would learn in uh, sort of uh, geometry, uh, is that um, I'm trying to, walk people through a process so it'll make sense when we hit the punchline and they'll laugh. I like that a lot. I, I actually loved proofs. Geometry was one of my favorite classes ever. And I, I just love doing proofs too. So my brain does work that way. I, I'm curious for content discovery, listening to a lot of stand up sets, you know, many of them are real life experiences and things that have happened to them. Do you find any parallels there between how you came up with new material as a comedian and how you come up with new material as a content creator? Well, this may go into why I wasn't a great comic. <laughs> I, uh, I really was just into the craft of writing jokes and so much of my act had nothing to do with my life. Uh, but the irony that you say about real life, in writing my blog, I, my blog is sparkminute.com, although I also write a blog on my business site, Spark Media Solutions. I have found that anytime I tell a real life story, and in fact, the, the most recent post is about the fact that um, my business just celebrated nine years in business. And half of that time, my wife joined me and she's my partner in the business. And I talked about the pros and cons of running a business with your, your partner. And, you know, in the end, the pros are better than the cons. Uh, so I found definitely talking about my real, oh, and the, the payoff to the question is this blog post did really, really well because it came directly from my life. So I have found anytime I tell real world experiences on my blog, it does actually very, very well as opposed to when I write and I write these a lot, you know, five tips to this, 10 tips to that. Here's my generic advice on doing X. Um, when I tie it into real world stuff, it just does a lot better. And and it and you can reflect that in the headline. That's key. I love that. I, I think that's a point worth pulling out. And, you know, we'll go ahead and mark that to be one of the tweetable moments in the write up of this. But, you know, I, I think the formula of creating content, most people say do a list, have a numbered list, you know, do five best ways to blah, 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 blah. And it's kind of the the BuzzFeed model, right? Come up with a great headline and deliver on the headline, but it's still purely headline-based. And I know as someone who creates a lot of content internally for the company I work for, Oracle Marketing Cloud, I don't blog as much personally as I used to. And my all-time best-performing post is a blog post about being sued over a blog post. So it's a bit Inception-like, but it's a it's an emotional, real-life experience that talks through the ups, the downs, the scary moments, and how I felt. And it didn't follow any of the formulas that you'll see to create great content, but it was 
a real experience. And somehow that resonated and picked up on social, but it wasn't kind of the prescriptive model of content creation. So it's interesting that you're seeing a lot of that too. What was the title of that blog post? It was, um, let's see, I was sued over a blog post and something you could learn about. So it's obvious from the title that it was a personal experience, right? Yes, I'm pulling up the exact title because if you search sued over a blog post, there are 20.1 million results and I'm number one out of 20.1 million. So it's I was sued over a blog post and you can learn from it. Right. So here's the difference. If you were never sued over a blog post and you want to write that blog post, you would have to do research on it. And it would be 10 tips on how to what to do or here's what to do when you're sued by a blog post. But it wasn't your personal experience. It was just a, a journalistic endeavor. Now, uh, if you want, and most of us, you know, would write it that way. We wouldn't go out to be sued by a blog post so we could create a first world experience <laughs> from doing it. Um, but that does a lot better. And as a result, like for example, this the the blog post I told you the uh, you know it was it's titled um, you know what my wife. And I uh, lost and gained running a business together. So it's obvious it's personal. Well, I want to write something because we celebrated nine years in business. I want to write something about the fact that we work together. So I did some, you know, basic just searches to see what other people write. And it was a lot of, you know, top tips for husbands and wives to work together. Couples who are, here's what to watch out for. You're working. And it was all from, quote, experts talking about, you know, what you should and shouldn't do. And it was all this unrealistic stuff in there. Like don't bring work, don't bring work home with you and keep this part of your life separate from this part and, and make time for each other. And these are generic things that you wouldn't need to read a blog post about, but they don't show people actually doing it. None of it came from people doing it. And we talked about in the post, it was just like, well, here's, what's good and bad about the experience. And there are negatives and there are positives, but we have found that the positives outweigh the negatives. And that's why we still do it and how we also approached it as well. I love that. It almost feels, I mean, it's such a dumb thing for this to feel retro, but the common sense things tend to come back in marketing. It's really weird. I think we kind of jumped the shark for a while and everyone's trying to, figure out the next big thing and the next social network and the next place to be. And, you know, life experiences are what are working. <laughs> it works. I mean, there, there's no other formula. About I, it. I would say in every case, I tell a sort of a compelling life experience article. It always does well. When I write a sort of a tip and advice article, which I still do because, you know, maybe I don't have enough life experiences to go off of sometimes. Uh, but when I write a tip article, it can sometimes do well, but not always do well. Well, I mean, while we're on the topic of passionate life experiences, I, I think that would lead everyone to think of trade shows and conferences and working the booth because I, I know every single listener probably loves working trade shows. And I, I would disagree. Love- I think a lot of people don't necessarily like it at all. Oh, they love they love standing on their feet for fourteen hours and there talking to people who aren't interested in their product and trying to get them demos and all the fun things that we do at the events. But you know, you you, you have do a you work book a lot of trade shows, be- Chris. Sorry, do you work a lot of trade shows like for Oracle? Do you or do Oracle Open World? 
Oh man, I, I used to like actually work tons of trade shows. Now I go and it's more in a, a speaker capacity. So fortunately I don't have to stand on the floor as much, but I, I was deep with sarcasm there because I think most yeah. people aren't naturals at, at being great at trade shows. And I, I'm curious, some of the learnings and life experiences that you put into your book about how to be more successful with those. So the the big thing that I try to stress with this book, uh, again, uh, Three Feet from Seven Figures, it's available at threefeetbook.com, is that uh, there is an enormous cost to going to a trade show. Even the smallest trade show, the cost is extraordinary and we're not just talking about the sponsorship but we're talking about the sending the people there the months of preparation the all the sort of the setup you have to do to buy to get there and then literally you have this ludicrously short window eight maybe 16 24 hours total of hours on the floor that you get to actually be close to potential customers and it's amazing the number of people who literally shut down at that moment or do not know what to do. And I'm talking about behavior like staring at your cell phone, working on your computer, talking to your coworkers. People don't realize when you're at a trade show, you're essentially on display. When you're physically in the booth, it's like a stage and you're on display to the rest of the floor. Anything you do in that booth reflects on you and your business. And if you were showing that you don't care about the people in the aisle, which is when you stare at yourself on your computer or talk to your coworkers, you know, in like a huddle, then people just kind of pass judgment on you without ever talking to you. And now here's the weird thing. Everything I just described, I talked about being really bad, but that's normal behavior in the office. I mean, that's what we normally do. If we're in the office, we'd look at our phone we talk on our phone we eat we you know work on a computer talk to our coworkers. but on a trade show it's actually abhorrent because you're displaying disinterest and that's the last thing you want to do and so that's kind of the first thing I, I try to explain to people about trade shows and then then we get into the core of all right how do I stop this random stranger how do I qualify this person or disqualify them and move on because you got to make the most of the very limited time you have at a trade show well, I'm curious too. I think one of the things I've noticed from doing lots of shows over the years is that sometimes the personalities you would least expect to be really successful at a trade show are actually some of the most successful. And I, I think traditionally, yeah. So traditionally, I, I think you know when I first started in marketing, it was let's find our best salespeople and let's put them in the booth because they're talking on the phone, they're good at engaging with people, they they're used to people telling them no, and it's not going to rattle them. And I've actually seen at some companies where customer support type personalities that can really diagnose problems and listen and understand, and, and they may not even know the sales track. They may not even know where they're trying to go to potentially close a person. Those have tended to work extremely well. But but I'm curious, you know, when you're writing you a book about- an awesome point. First of all, I would go so far as to say, don't ever put salespeople in your booth. And here's my main reason. Salespeople are disincentivized to work a trade show booth. It is not their job to get leads. It's their job to follow up on leads. And the point of the booth, and in most cases, I don't want to paint the complete brush, but the point of the trade show booth is to get leads, usually. Usually you're not closing sales. 
A salesman at a trade show wants to follow up on existing leads or work existing customers that they already have. And that requires, you know, being out there and schmoozing and not being trapped in the booth. Um, so you're, you're 100% right. I Customer service people are excellent because they're usually just listening to problems and responding positively or trying to work them out rather than pushing and se- selling, which is a lot of things people don't realize. Hey, I set up the booth. I need to tell everybody about it. In actuality, no, you need to listen to what other people are saying. Do you think a big forcing factor in that is the tremendous cost? Like maybe people are doing the math and saying like, whoa, we really need to close some business from this because we're spending six figures. I mean, I'm trying to wonder the root cause. Like do do oh, people yeah. really I mean, think well, sales is It's also, there? you know, what you're describing is 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 perfect. You know, we're at this trade show. It costs this much money. We need to get so many hits. We need to, you know, scan this many badges this is our goal. Yes, yes, of course, that's it. Um, but so much of the time on a trade show, I mean, you've seen it. You've walked by enormous booths where you see people wearing the same colored shirts talking to each other, not talking to the people on the floor. And you need to be present, looking out, talking to, engaging with the people on the floor. And if that's not happening, then you're not maximizing your investment. And the more you're engaging with that staff that you're so physically close to, hence my title, Three Feet from Seven Figures, if I close this person that I'm so close to, inevitably, you know, that, and if that person becomes a customer, that, you know, lifetime value may be, you know, seven figures. Mostly, you know, we deal with a lot of B2B tech companies, and that's inevitable. So let's talk about coming out of a conference or a trade show or an event and the content that you can create at the event or post event. And I know that this is something you've done with lots of people. One of the examples you mentioned. Yeah. And well, I want you to touch on one example. And that was the question at a security event. What's your password? Like one, I'm personally curious how that went over because that's hilarious to me. But if you could talk a bit about creating content at an event and what are some tips there? And then if you could share a little about the security conference, because I'm really intrigued by that one. So very quickly, we do probably two thirds of our businesses at trade shows and conferences. And our business is creating content. And we refer to it as relations-based content because we're we use content as a means to form relationships with people. It's far easier for me to say to you, Chris, can I interview you rather than Chris come back to my booth for a 10-minute demo or Chris come meet my CEO and listen to our big announcement. It's just you get a higher acceptance rate, period. And it's, the goal is to begin that relationship. And just content is a great way to begin a relationship. The fact that I'm on your show. I hope that we form a relationship. I reached out to you on LinkedIn and I hope we continue to connect because this is a great way to form a relationship. Uh, so at a, going specifically though to that video, and if, if anyone just types in what's your password, you'll find it's the second result after uh, a video that Jimmy Kimmel did actually years later on the very same topic. And they did it in a very different way and they weren't specifically at a security conference. So one of the things we're also most well known for is our man on the street videos. And sometimes we create silly ones and I've actually provided a bunch of tips. I have this article, 21 tips for creating funny man on the street videos. And this does come from personal experience because that's what we create. Um, one of the techniques that I have found that works really, really well at a conference is ask the most inappropriate question at the conference. 
And the most inappropriate question at a security conference is, what's your password? I wasn't expecting anyone to tell me their password, although if you watch the video, you will see a few people actually did, which was shocking to me. And I actually, we did this twice. There's a second what's my password video. But it was so much about video, and people don't realize this, is that moment of reaction when the question is asked. I want to capture that moment, that that visceral response when I ask that completely inappropriate question. And if I ask it 50 times, I'm going to get 50 funny moments. And then we compile a fun like two-minute highlights reel or what we call a man-on-the-street video, and uh, we get a fun video out of it. And that video did very well. It was It was a fun video. I love that. I'm trying to think of the most inappropriate question for marketers. Any ideas there? <laughs> oh, that's a good question. Okay, so no, no, let's let's brainstorm this for a second. Let's use a minute or two of the podcast to figure that out. The most inappropriate question for marketers. So what is marketers marketers trying to fool people into believing that their product is the best? And I'm being very sort of tongue-in-cheekish when I say that. Um, marketers I mean, maybe could here's a good inappropriate question to ask at a, at a show. And oh, in fact, I will tell you one we did at Salesforce. Uh, at Salesforce, I asked people on camera, "When is the appropriate time to swear at your customers?" That one did very well too. That was funny uh, because people went along with it; they loved it. Uh, but I would say, like, when have you lied to your customers to a marketer? And I think I think you'd get people to respond to that. You get a lot of people say, "Oh, I never lie to my customers." Yeah. Right. That'd be a good yeah, question I, I for think a marketing. A, I'll, uh, maybe I'll use that. Or maybe someone listening will use that and create a fun video. Yeah, I mean, it, because so much of marketing is the customer experience now. And, and I think that's one of the big edicts for the CMO, right? It's to start to own this true customer experience. And before it was more like this fluffy concept of, oh, we love all our customers. But now it's actually tangible and saying, well, look, do you have a single view of your customers? How are you treating them? What are the interactions? What content are you serving up at various points of the relationship? So that could actually be a really interesting question. Yeah, I mean, we've all lied to our customers in one way or another, and it could be a very much a white lie. You know, if you could drive that out of somebody and get that moment, because when I asked, when is the appropriate time to swear at your customers? Yeah, some people played along and they swore on camera or they uh, or they um, they said you should never do it or I always do it. But a few people I spoke to said, I actually did it today. And I said, well, how did that go over? Because it didn't go over well. You know, and, and so you by asking that inappropriate question, you can kind of get to the core sometimes and get a really funny story. Because again, uh, when doing this, when doing these sort of man on the street videos, you're looking for honest reactions. You're looking for people to dredge up a, a true story on their own and, or, or hit a chord. Like sometimes another trick I do for man on the street videos is, is put people to a challenge that makes them a little uncomfortable. So after a mobile tech conference, I asked people, what would happen if you left your mobile phone at home for an entire day? And just think about that. Just the thought of that scares the crap out of people. And I got that moment on camera, which was what I was looking for. 
That's awesome. I like that. And well, if we were to ask, what's the most useful marketing resource? I think that would be a great opportunity to introduce Convince and Convert, which, as everyone knows, is one of the sponsors of this show. Not only the sponsor, they produce the show. So if you're not familiar with Jay Bear and the crew at ConvinceandConvert.com, you should be. So if you like what you hear on this show, you'll love Definitive. It's the email from Convince and Convert that many marketers say is the most useful resource around. Each day, the team at Convince and Convert picks a topic, and they send you the three best resources ever created about that topic. It's topical, it's timely, it's useful. Go to definitivedigest.com and subscribe for free right now. Hopefully, every now and then, you may get something from Oracle Marketing Cloud, because that's one of our goals, to try to produce something very useful. You may get stuff from Uberflip, too. So we're both excited. Randy is not here today, but Randy is the co-founder of Uberflip, and they do create amazing content, even if we don't like him on the show. And that was David's words, not mine. I, I don't know you at all, Randy, and I actually reached out to you via LinkedIn. So, Randy, please take it in the jest that I threw it out as. <laughs> yes, Randy is great. He's lovely and amazing. Well, I'm curious, too, with a lot of the man-on-the-street stuff and everything that you're doing for your clients, what do you consider to be the ultimate measure of success? Like, how are you measuring your content? We, you know, we do some of the general stuff, the quote vanity metrics, because it's numbers that go physically up because that's what the clients want to see. But for me, because what we refer to is relations-based content, um, you know, we, we like to, we like to see how many relations with industry experts you've made, how many influencers now know your name and how many are responding to you as well. I mean, that for us is a mark of success because we're dealing almost exclusively B2B. You know, we've done some B2C stuff, but almost all of our stuff is in the B2B environment and mostly in tech. And so much of their marketing is reliant on what influencers think of them. And, and it's important that, you know, when you're forming that relationship, you care about the individual first rather than, you just keep showing their product and you you showing your product and pitching your product. Yeah, that can work over time. Or if your product is amazing and it sort of cuts through all the noise, but not necessarily everybody can do that. Even if you do have a great product, there just may be a lot of noise. Um, so our mark of success is when we can connect with tons of influencers. When the next year I see them, they're excited to see us. They're you know, anytime I call or the company calls or emails. Uh, they're happy to participate in whatever fun project we have, have. And, um, you know, I, I can say there's certain industries that we've really made huge inroads, just basic it in general, anything that's sort of major it working in the cloud, the security is huge. We're about to do the RSA conference, which will be our seventh year covering. And we got great relations and information security as a result, recruiting, marketing, and PR. These are all areas just solely by covering these events, we've made huge inroads. I love that, David. And, and I think one thing that people tend to forget with influencer relations is it, it's not just a one-time thing. It follows you every single place you go. Because I, I know that the relationships I built, which they could be filed in the influencer category, but as you said, it's really getting to know people and you know trying to help each other out. It's not just like, hey, promote our product. I mean, you know, eight years ago when I was at, a company three jobs ago, right? 
I still talk to those people all the time. And if we're doing influencer stuff, they're some of the first folks I reach out to. So I think that's one of the cool things about trying to do projects like what you're doing, because whether you're doing it for, you know, client A, B or C, it's still the same people you're talking to. Yeah, uh, it, that's a very, very good point. And, and it's interesting you mentioned that. I used to be with the ZDTV that later became known as Tech TV. And the friends and relationships I made at that company have have been extraordinarily valuable to me on because all of them sort of went and stayed in media, but in in many different areas. And uh, I have leaned, leaned on those relationships many times since, you know, since leaving the company, which was, you know, back in 2001. Yes, it happens all the time for me. And I know that's, you know, one of the lovely things about working with Convince and Convert. Jay Bear was one of the first influencers I ever really got to know when I was early in marketing. And now, you know, now I'm one of his little fledglings doing a show for him. So it, it but, all works But this out. show, actually, this show is a perfect example of relationship making through content. I got to assume that everyone you have interviewed on this show, assuming they had a positive experience on it, which I can't imagine they wouldn't, has become a relationship for you because you showed interest in them first. You're interviewing them. Let's talk about you rather than, you know, this show being the 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 Chris and Randy hour and listen to how wonderful we are. And that is a powerful, powerful thing to do. And, and we always recommend actually clients form podcasts just for this reason, because it's a great excuse to form a relationship with someone. It's a lot easier to say, hey, would you be a guest on my podcast rather than, hey, do you have 20 minutes for us to pitch our new company to you? You can get to that eventually, but show interest in them first. Yeah, and I can definitively say where there's the definitive, the tie to the newsletter, but I can definitively say that this is the best learning resource I have as a marketer, and it's talking to folks because I could read all of the posts. I could try to you know set up RSS feeds and subscribe to email newsletters and all the things that I do anyway, but actually having conversations with people with different areas of expertise and different experiences – I absorb all of that information. So when I go back and talk to my team, you know, it's it's all seeped in somehow just by asking questions. And it's not promotional. It's not like, oh, Oracle Marketing Cloud is the sponsor, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's just me talking to people. And I, I love it. It's one of the, my favorite things that I do as a marketer. Excellent. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I have a podcast myself, teardownshow.com. But mostly, you know, we used to actually invite a lot of guests and we haven't lately. But uh, I just love engaging. Uh, and this is really just me and a partner that I do up in Seattle, Michael Wolf. Uh, but, uh, when we did interview people of which we, maybe we should get them back on again. Uh, it was, it was a very powerful and valuable resource. Well, David, we're coming up on the end of our time together and we love to ask one question after every single episode of content pros. And that is what did you want to be when you grew up? So, uh, I wish there was something clever I had to say about this, but I do remember vividly when I was very young, I did say I wanted to be a rabbi. <laughs> so I, 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 uh, I found that a little, but I don't know why I, I, I just, I guess I liked my rabbi at the time. I was a great guy. I still like him very much. Um, maybe that's what, and I just kind of liked the idea of there was a guy sort of, sort of in control, sort of presiding over a group of people, Maybe that was my interest in going into stand-up instead and being a rabbi. Although he's kind of a funny guy, my rabbi. And a lot of rabbis are funny. 
in general. Uh, but it's interesting you asked that because that was a question I asked uh, for LinkedIn. I did a, a video for LinkedIn at a um, at an advertising event, and I asked people, what did you want to be when you grew up, and how does that connect to what you do today? And people, you know, had the slew of, you know, I wanted to be a ballerina or a basketball star. Um, and in some cases, there were connections and <laughs> some not. But it was very kind of insightful in that we learned a little bit about how desires when you were a child actually connect to your world today. Yeah, I, I, that comes up a bunch, too. And I, I know for me, I was, you know, renting out Nintendo games when I was five and I didn't have a return policy. So it was a terrible business model. But I always had that kind of <laughs> entrepreneurial spirit. And I, I have that even though I work for a very large company. So I, I, I'm very thankful for that. <laughs> Well, David, thank you so much for your time and thanks everyone for tuning in. If you guys are not following David Spark, please do go to sparkmediasolutions.com and sparkminute.com. Did I get that correct, David? Make that is correct. And the book is threefeetbook.com. Threefeetbook.com. So if you do anything with trade shows, conferences, events, you should definitely check out that book. I'm going to send it to our events team. They're already amazing, but I'm sure that they would love to read that. So thank you all for joining. I am Chris Moody from Oracle Marketing Cloud. We do not have Randy Frisch from Uberflip today, but Randy no, is still amazing. he wasn't here, and I'm angry. Yes, we'll get you connected with Randy. He's a great guy. And you can catch out more episodes at contentprospodcast.com. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, anywhere you like to get your podcast. Thank you all for joining, and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for tuning in to Content Pros. Please leave a review and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast listening app. Go to contentprospodcast.com for a complete show archive and greatest hits. Content Pros is sponsored by Oracle Marketing Cloud, Uberflip, and by Sixter, and is produced by Convince and Convert Media. Find more great shows like Content Pros at marketingpodcast.com, the first search engine for marketing podcasts. Podcast imaging by